Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Rachel Kushner? This is she. Hello, Rachel. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the Quarantine Tapes. Thank you so much for taking our call. I'm I'm really delighted to speak to you. Uh, well, I was looking forward to speaking to you as well, Paul. So tell me, Rachel, how have these last three months been for you? What have you been up to? Where have you been? How have you been spending this time of quarantine, let us say? Well, you know, there are different periods within the quarantine itself. It yes. seems no longer to be, to me, one protracted block of predicament, but perhaps maybe two or three different blocks of it. Mm. And of course, those predicaments are experienced quite unevenly since May 25th has been quite different than the days preceding, which were, for myself, quiet, sustained work. Um, it's probably, at this point, a cliche for the, for the writer to point out that she's been training to be at home and see no one for yeah. decades. So yeah. it's just normal life for me. And, um, I, you know, there are things about it that are heartbreaking for other people. My, my neighbor died of COVID-19 oh, and um, the reason that he got it is because his son-in-law uh, got it at work and works at a distribution center for a large chain of grocery stores called Ralph's. Right. And so you see the way that these disparities um, take effect and manifest in rather stark ways. But I, I was just here working. I finished a book and wrote a short story and read a lot of novels and watched a lot of movies, and um, I have a 12-year-old son, and I listen to him play a lot of piano, which he's home, so he has time to do that. Well, you know, I've, I've spoken to a number of writers, as you know, and many of them say that cliche, since you use the word cliche, that in, in a way, um, the period they're living through now, though heightened, is something that is not so different in many ways, strangely enough. As you said, they've been preparing for it. Yesterday, I spoke to a painter, uh, an artist, and he said, you know, it's, it's not that difficult for me in a sense, because this is what I do. I, I mainly spend my time alone. And now, I guess the world, in a way, is feeling what it might feel like to be alone, but of course with a huge difference. So I, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more about what you've been writing and what you've been reading and what you've been watching. But talk to me about May 25th. Well, that's the day that George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you know that. 
I, yes, of, of course I do. Yes, <laughs> of course I do. I, I I mentioned it just because it's a date. You know, every everything is heightened now, also in terms of dates. Um, in in one way, um, every these three months seem like a long protracted moment. When will it be over? Is it Saturday or is it Tuesday? Many people don't know. On the other hand, we remember certain things that happened on a certain day. For instance, I've been speaking to certain performing artists who remember very clearly when was the last time they played, you know, May 12th or, or right. March 7th. Usually it's March 5th or 6th or 7th. But May 25th, for you, that date, um, as for everyone, is inscribed in our memory forever. And I'd love you to tell me um, in, in which way you're living it. Yeah, sure. No, you're absolutely right. And um, you're right to point out that um, there was a kind of undifferentiated flow of time prior to that. And I think the reason that I used the date and not what happened and what's happened since is that suddenly we both went off of what I, I would call traditional calendar time and into something more like what I would call Kairos, mm. like uh, a non-calendar time, which I don't know, in continental philosophy is thought of as the time of the event where time is suddenly structured, not by, oh, it's Friday and on Friday I do X, but the historical conditions have been shaped and made and irrevocably altered by something that has taken place that will fracture the calendar time. And it seems that that happened on May 25th. And time was so irrevocably changed that after a week of, you know, being out in the streets and watching online in other cities, people being out in the streets and watching people vocalize, you know, decades and decades of frustration and heartbreak and pain, um, that it became kind of abstract that it had only taken place a week ago, the yes, death of this yes, person. Yes, I agree completely. And uh, that's why I decided that we were in this time of Kairos, even if that's a little like highfalutin to label it um, with a Greek concept, but but it, it is, genuinely but it is. seemed like a different. We'd slipped into a different time. But kairos is exactly the right the right term. Um, it is. It is a moment. It is an occasion, and and also, it's an occasion. And is it a portal? Um, I know you once said about your involvement with people in prison. I wanted to have a life that would include people that the state of California has rendered invisible to others yeah well i do have that life although in a certain way that's kind of different because their sense of time is so stretched and protracted by a form of patience mm. uh, that they have been forced to attain acquire practice so i don't i don't know about the link between the two i mean in terms of that word portal if this time is a portal that means it's going to deliver us to some place that is different than where we began. And I think it's too early to know if that's the case. Well, the, the word portal, I've been using it a few times on these calls uh, uh, because Arundhati Roy wrote this piece where she believed that the pandemic was perhaps a portal and this moment may be a portal. The, the whole notion of what it might mean for us to return to things as they were. 
or as as my mother used to say, return to what passes for normal. Right. Well, you know, I, I don't want to stain our interaction with the pragmatic mechanics of politics, mm. but I think this time mm. is really only a portal if people uphold their standards and refuse to compromise mm. and say, we don't want um, policies that make it okay to shoot people in the head. And we also don't want policies that make it okay to shoot people in the knees. I mean, I'm being maybe a little bit snarky. No, um, I don't think so. But I, I think that, you know, whether this time, it's a beautiful concept. I don't know that that talk when Arundhati Roy made that reference. It's funny, I've always liked the word portal. And there's this, uh, there's a motel in Lone Pine, California called the Portal Motel, mm. which sounds like it promises something greater than you could normally get for <laughs> right, uh, $68 right. a night. I, I just think it's too early to know if this time is a portal. I think that we, we have to proceed looking at it as an opportunity that we want to seize and looking at its intensities and trying to figure out how to sustain them and transform them into change. Um, but that just depends right, on a right. whole host of, of things. Of course, and, and I often quote this line of of Mark Twain, who said that it's extremely hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> he was pretty funny, wasn't I, he? He was pretty funny, and you know, it's it's like like with Oscar Wilde and others, it's time bombs. Um, you 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 laugh, and then you realize, my goodness, he said something that is perhaps quite profound. Um, and, and I think it's, it's dangerous. I loved, I loved the way you used the word stain. Um, you, you wrote this extraordinary piece on Ruth Wilson Gilmore, an incredible profile, which I reread in preparation for speaking with you. And she speaks about carceral geography. And I'm wondering why is that concept to your mind, so useful? And what does it allow us precisely, since we were talking about invisibility, to see? Well, yeah, thank, thank you for mentioning the piece mm, and for amazing, amazing, reading it. Everybody must read it now, now, immediately. Um, yeah, actually, it seems like it has been, it came out one year ago um, on, was it a year ago? Yes. Yeah. E Easter last yeah. year in the one New York Times magazine. yeah. And ridiculously, I spent two years writing that article. <laughs> I could have another novel by now. Oh and instead, I, I did this work. And um, Ruthie, as she is known, not just by close friends, but, you know, in, in the community of um, scholars and activists with whom she circulates, she lives half the year in Portugal and is involved in a lot of, like, post-colonial um, political work there. And I went there to interview her for that piece and ended up with 80,000 words worth of transcripts. Amazing. And um, it was a real, I'll get back to cultural geography, but it was a real process to write it because writing for the New York Times Magazine, I adore the editors there. And it's totally different than writing something like an op-ed for the print newspaper. You don't just um, share your opinion and people can fight it out in the comments section. It's the New York Times magazine editors want to be able to countenance your arguments. They need to sanction what you write. 
they have to agree with you, basically. They have to think you're being absolutely logical and that you can back up all of your claims. And so the process of writing a piece about carceral geography and prison abolition and proposing that there was a long tradition in the United States and um, in Scandinavia uh, and some other countries of trying to reduce radically the carceral footprint of the state in the form of policing and courts and prisons and what Ruth Gilmore would call carceral solutions yeah. to social problems. Yeah. So, you know, like people are saying now about the police, um, like Alex Vitale, who is, uh, you know, wrote this great book, The End of Policing, yeah. last year, and I promoted it, and it was, you know, but suddenly everyone's reading it, and he's peering everywhere and pointing out things that yeah. some of us have been talking about for a long time, namely that um, if you only try to control society's deep endemic problems based on poverty and inequality with brute force, you will not end up with a safe society. Um, so writing that piece about Gilmore for the New York Times Magazine, the editors really needed to come to understand and sanction my arguments. And that was a very long process working with them on that. And when it was done, I thought, wow, I just spent two years of my life on this. But now... Thank you for having spent that time, by the way. Well, well <laughs> you're welcome. But now... You know, there are these, one cannot predict. Um, I'm half a century old. You don't know, you don't, you can't anticipate what you will see and experience in your life. And suddenly history is catching up yeah. to all of these people like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who have been putting in this work quietly with real moral stamina. Mm. Stamina because, you know, you, you, you feel alone with your arguments. They are not mainstream and widespread. And now they've done the work. I've done my small part in the work. And the rest of the world is catching up with us. And the work is there for them to turn to, which is great. Which is am amazing to see the New York Times bestseller list last week, and to see. You know, I, I don't read the New York Times. No, no, no but I'm, 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 I'm just going to tell you. You know, to see uh, yeah. uh, Michelle Alexander, to see Kianga Yamata Taylor, to see uh, Ibrahim X Kendi. I mean, all these books that you know, two weeks ago, before that twenty fifth of of May that we were talking about before, would not have been anywhere near the first 50 now they are four five six seven you know Imani Perry to see uh, you know whatever one might make of it but to see that um, you know uh, President Obama is saying, read Michelle Alexander, read uh, Elizabeth Alexander, read Imani Perry, read Kianga Yamata Taylor. It's extraordinary and one the, the question then is it's extraordinary I'm heartened by it, but is it a portal? That, um, Obama telling people to read books is definitely not a portal. Okay. From my purview. But I, I you know, have my own opinions about these things. Um, I, I'm happy that people are um, reading Kianga Yamada Taylor and Michelle Alexander, but I think that both of those people uh, have pretty large audiences 
through their roles as contributing op-ed writers to the New York Times. And Michelle Alexander certainly was already, you know, widely considered a famous best-selling author for New Jim Crow. But I think the work that she's done since, her op-eds in the New York Times, have been more pitched and in a way more radical than the arguments that she made in that book. So what, what do you... What do you make of the sudden rise in the public discourse of phrases like defund the police and abolish prisons? Well, I'm not too concerned myself with what's meant by this phrase, the public discourse. The public, when you say the public discourse, I think of the sort of chatter in the New York Times. Mm. And, you know, among people um, who might be reading these books that Obama mentioned, but that's not really a public discourse right. that I'm personally engaged with or interested in. Um, I certainly talk to my neighbors and, you know, I talk to kids. I go downtown. I live a 15-minute walk from City Hall. So I can go to a protest anytime I want to very easily and talk to people out in the street and talk to my friends who have sort of been involved in the project of abolition for a long time in terms of, like, what mainstream um, like liberals, if you will, people who are educated, read books, read the New York Times, turning toward this. I don't know, except if they're saying abolition, I think that's great. Defund, if it's on the road to abolition, if it's in mind to taking money away from policing and carceral control, as it were, and putting that money into communities in the form of housing and education and social services, the kinds of things that, as Michelle Alexander, you know, who does this for a living, I don't, I'm a fiction writer, is very good and clear on these statistics that, that we know what makes us safe. And what makes us safe is strengthening our society and investing in people so that they have systems of support long before they have a run-in with a murderous police officer. I, I, guess, um, I guess that, you know, when I was saying public discourse, I, I completely understand the way in which you are scrupulous and skeptical for that term. I, I, I suppose I was thinking, um, is, is, this, is this moment um, where everyone seems to be talking either in a positive or negative way about abolish prisons or defund the police, uh, police. Is it a shift in, is, is there a shift in consciousness that is happening for white America? For white America? Yeah. Well, I, huh, that's interesting. I mean, I, what is white America? Are you asking me? <laughs> yeah, because I don't see an undifferentiated block of people called white America. Mm. Um, like, let's just take California. Like, if you said white California, what would you mean? California is about 50% white. Right. 49. But do the white people in Fresno and Stockton and Bakersfield have anything in common with the white people in Beverly Hills or in San Francisco? I think they don't. And their experience of America and of, of what it means to um, have opportunities, you know, might also be quite different. I mean, I guess I'm, and I, I don't want to divide things crudely into, 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 into class versus uh, yeah, race, and but into, and you, into you cannot just, yeah, into you can't just divide by race in this country no. because there is also a class component. So 
in terms of white America, I don't think that I don't think everyone is having the same experience of this time. I don't know. Surely but I, not. I guess I surely think- not. Surely not. And I I think um, uh, the the way maybe I posed the question wasn't certainly wasn't rigorous. Yeah. Well, no, that's okay. But also, I mean, I think that this is a difficult thing to get into, and I, I very difficult. Black- very- very difficult. I, I, l- let me ask you something completely different. You've been saying that you've been watching a lot of films. Um, I'd love to know what some of the highlights were uh, in in the recent past. But before I get to that, I've I've been very curious, Rachel, and I'm I'm of two, three, or maybe four opinions, or maybe of none. But r- hearing when I drive back. Uh, home um in now living also in los angeles i'm i'm you know hearing about these changes that are happening uh, at showtime at hbo and other places where there's now a whole debate on whether they will keep in their backlist or not gone with the wind for instance and i'm 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 wondering what you think of these kinds of shifts that are happening now and do they do any good? Well, I'm not aware of, of those shifts. Um, I I don't have HBO or Showtime. Do, uh, are you aware? I mean, that, are I'm you aware? aware are you aware that they want to, you know, not show, not have these films anymore in their archives, or if they do have them in their archives, they want to put a disclaimer at the beginning of the film. I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. I I'm not aware of that. Um, I mean, I'm aware that Gone with the Wind is a controversial film and has been for a long time. I don't have strong opinions either way about that. But in a way, if we're commenting on it as a cultural phenomenon, I'm not sure that one can get at a cultural read of something by analyzing gestures made by corporations. That's right. Because they're just trying to cover their ass on some level, you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, they, they are now now uh, Quaker Oats is removing Aunt Jemima, so I'm I'm hearing. Well, I, I think we're ready to say goodbye to Aunt Jemima. Yeah. I guess, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. What have you been watching? I watched Bellatar's Saint and Tango recently. I sent you a note mentioning yeah. that. Yeah, you did. But a whole host of different things, and um, that film had been sent to me by a friend three years ago yeah. with the instructions to watch it and send it on to another friend of ours. And um, the three of us have a shared love of movies and we've gone to a lot of movies together. The three of us have sat in a lot of movie theaters together. It took me three years to get around to watching the movie, which is seven hours long. That's my excuse. <sighs> and I decided finally, the thing to do with Satan Tango is treat it like a work day. If one has that luxury, um, which, you know, on some days I do have. And so I got up one morning and I made coffee and I sat down to watch Satan Tango. Like that was my job. And it was a seven hour job. I have seen other movies of Bellatar before, but not one with that intensity of duration to it. Maybe the closest would be um, The Turin Horse. Have you ever seen that film? No, no. Oh, it's quite amazing. No, anyway, but, but, um, I, but I love the I love the notion of treating it like like work. Um, you know, I want I want to show my my boys at some point. I mean, they're dreading it, but I want to show them Showa. And I told them that when I saw Showa, I saw it in one go from one p.m. to midnight. 
So they, they know it's on the horizon at some point, and that's about I, I'm so with you on that. I love that movie. But I also, I love to be subjected to very long films. I remember the first time I saw Michael Snow's Central Region. Have you ever seen that? No, but I have now have, I have three, three work days, thank to you. <laughs> well, Satan Tango is quite amazing. And once you're in the texture of it, it has an eternal quality. You know, eternity to me is, I mean, back to another kind of time, is time outside of time. Like it doesn't, to me, it doesn't mean endless time. It means a time that doesn't take place within time. And that film has those um, kind of qualities to it. So I've seen that, but I've seen some more lively films also. I went back to Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. It's it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, actually, I'm gonna. I don't usually do this, but because it will seem slightly discordant to people, I will name drop the person who told me to watch Once Upon a Time in the West was Jamaica Kincaid, mm. who had become obsessed with it herself and was watching it over and over. Um, and because I like her a lot, I thought, well, I hadn't seen it since they had released a director's cut in about 1985. And um, I know Westerns are kind of comforting. I've been reading a lot of Westerns too, or rereading them. But that one, I had never really paid attention to what a brilliant film it is. And also Charles Bronson. Um, did you know that Charles Bronson, Paul, um, his first language was Lithuanian? No. And he had, he had 15 siblings and started working in the coal mines in, I believe, Pennsylvania when he was nine years old. No idea. No idea. But, well, I, but, I, but I will tell you that uh, Jamaica Kincaid is somebody who's mattered to me greatly. And the first time I ever invited anyone to talk uh, in a public forum, which is something I've been doing for quite some time, as you know, was Jamaica Kincaid when I was a, a oh really when I was a pretend scholar at one point and a professor at a, a college in upstate Massachusetts. I invited Jamaica Kincaid, and she came to to talk to the entire entire college about a book of hers which I adore called A Small Place. I love that book too. Love it. It's so angry. It's, I so, know, but it's so angry that it nearly, nearly, nearly leaves you no space for anger. But it leaves, you, uh, it leaves you just enough to become extremely angry. It's exquisite. The few times I've taught, I don't teach regularly. Um, I teach that book. And I, I first ask the students to each give the class a geography lesson about where they're from. Mm. And then they read that. And it's a really fun way to start things off. The first time I met her um, was actually somewhat recently. Um, I met her in Sweden. She, w we were at, we were invited to this dinner together where each person invited to the dinner was female or female identifying and was meant to stand up and give a two minute, three minute presentation on a woman forgotten by history, you know, just lost to the Holocaust of time. And Jamaica was last and all these other women went, it was hours long in this beautiful room and people stood up one by one and told these stories. And a lot of them were white European women telling stories about the way that their grandmother suffered, maybe giving birth at home. And I don't know 
having to bite off the umbilical cord with their teeth and crawl across the floor on all fours. You know, it's kind of intense stories, but very exclusively about their um, experience as white European women. And um, Jamaica Kincaid went last and she stood up and I had talked to her beforehand about what she was going to do. She's going to talk about her mother. And instead, she gave her own analysis of what she'd heard that evening. She was the one person who did that. And um, <laughs> she was pretty intense in I the imagine. way that she responded. She probably, and she, it, she, she probably eviscerated a lot of people. Yes, and she, she, she beheaded them, basically, is how she put it to me the next day. But at the end of her brief, pithy, excoriating um, imprecation, she said, I was going to speak about my mother, but I've used up my time to tell you all what I think of your presentations. She said, but I will close with this. My mother praised us for breakfast and she ate us for dinner. And then she sat down. Rachel, um, I have so much more I would like to ask you, but sadly we've run out of time, which is terrible. I will ask you at some point, uh, hopefully soon, in a different context about reading Chuck Berry's autobiography and so much. Oh yeah, that's great fun. And a masterwork. And so much else. Um, I, I really wish we could speak more, but for now I, I just say thank you. Um, uh, I, 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 I really enjoyed speaking with you and thank you for correcting me several times it will make me think which is a very good thing no no no, absolutely are you kidding flattery gets us nowhere so thank you so much oh gosh but now i'm embarrassed i didn't mean to be at all corrective um i quite enjoyed talking to you so did i and i hope we speak soon again now that we live in the same city yes likewise thank you paul great to speak with you bye-bye all right bye-bye to support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.